come to the gripping and challenging book of Job, perhaps one of the most fascinating books of the Old Testament. And we also begin a new division in the scriptures with the book of Job. If you've read along with us from week to week, you've noticed that the books from Genesis to Esther all are narrative books. That is their history, a recounting of what has happened. And we've seen how these are vitally meaningful to us as we view them as living parables, as uh, types worked out in actual history by which we can see what's going on in our own spiritual lives. But Job begins a, another section, the, the poetical books of the Bible, including also Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, and the little book of Lamentations that tucked in behind Jeremiah. Job is a great poem, and someone has well said it's perhaps the greatest poem in all human literature. There's nothing that Shakespeare ever has written that exceeds this book in the beauty of expression. And everywhere it's admired as one of the most beautiful writings that man has ever possessed. But it's more than just a, uh, an expressive, dramatic writing. It has a very great message, as we'll see, I hope, tonight. It's a drama for us, an epic drama, much like the, the poems of, uh, of uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, poems of Homer from the Greek world. The book of Job is poetry, but it's also history. Job was an actual person who lived. And these events actually took place, but God is recounting them for us in this beautiful poetic style in order that we might have an answer to the age-old haunting question, why does apparently senseless tragedy take place among men? Anytime you get in difficulties, it's well to turn to the book of Job, because here is a man who plumbed the depths of human despair and desolation of spirit because of some very apparently meaningless, senseless tragedies that came striking into his life. Now, the ultimate answer to that question is given right at the first of the book, in the opening section of it. We are handed, as it were, certain program notes on this dramatic production to explain for us something about the drama which the actors themselves are not permitted to know. And the answer is simply that senseless suffering arises out of Satan's basic challenge to the government of God. When this book opens, we find God meeting with the, uh, his angelic creation, and among them comes Satan, striding in, sneering, swaggering, convinced that self-interest is the only adequate explanation for human behavior. Satan's philosophy is that the argument, what's in it for me, is the only accurate explanation of why people do anything. And uh, he is making the claim in the opening uh, section of the book here, in the presence of God, that anyone who claims that human beings act from any other motive than that is nothing but a religious phony. And he says, I'll prove it. And God says, rather patiently, all right, we'll give your theory a test. 
And he selects the man Job as a battleground. In World War II, at the opening of the war, uh, between Japan and the United States, it looked as though the, the, the major focus of this battle should lie in the Pacific Ocean and probably between here and Japan, including the islands of Hawaii, as the battle began at Pearl Harbor. But very early in the war, as you'll remember, events took a startling and sudden turn. And without any word of warning, the whole theater of war was abruptly shifted down into the South Pacific. And for the first time, perhaps many Americans began to hear of the strange names of islands like Guadalcanal and others. And in those quiet, obscure, out-of-the-way corners of the earth, the greatest powers on earth of that day began were locked in mortal combat, and the islands became the battleground for the, the great fight between empires. Now, such is something of the story of the book of Job. Here's a man going about his own quiet life, uh, unaware that he has suddenly become the pinpoint of all history, that all that God's, uh, of God's activity is for the time being focused upon him, and that he has become the battleground for a conflict between God and Satan, in which God is attempting to pull the rug out from Satan's uh, power and to reveal him as the phony that he is. And Job is that battleground. Now Satan moves in with shock troops. In chapter 1, we, we read how one by one the props are taken away from Job's life. It's almost as though there is a Western Union tele, uh, telegram boy delivering a message of some terrible catastrophe, and hard on his heels comes another one, and uh, the messages come in. First, all his oxen have been taken by enemy raid, and then all his asses have been decimated, and then a... Word comes that his sheep have been killed by a terrible electric storm. And hard on the heels of that is the news that all his great flock of camels, the wealth of the uh, Oriental world, have been wiped out in a natural catastrophe. And then comes the heart-rending, heartbreaking news that his seven sons and three daughters were all together in one home enjoying a birthday celebration when a great tornado hit and the house was demolished and all his children were killed in one fatal blow. And Job takes it all in stride. Down at the end of chapter 1, verse 21, his response to this terrible series of tragic, senseless accidents is, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I wonder if we'd have lasted that long. But Satan's a bit taken aback, and so he goes back to, to God and asks for a change in the rules of the game. He decides to strike at the jugular vein, and he petitions God for the right to strike at Job's own body, and God grants it. And without warning, Job is suddenly stricken with a series of terrible boils, carbuncles. There was a time in my life when in a period of about a year and a half, I had some 25 boils on my body, not at the same time, no more than two or three at one time. But I've always had a deep sympathy for dear old Job. 
Well, there's nothing more aggravating than a terrible boil. After a while, medication doesn't touch it. And you only have to grit your teeth and wait out the long agony of that until it comes to a head and some relief is obtained. But Job was stricken with these from the top of his head to the sole of his foot. And uh, he uh, hardly knows what to do. But he's determined to wait it out. And as the malady continues, his wife is the first one to succumb. She turns upon him and says, Are you still holding fast to your integrity? Why don't you curse God and die? And uh, Job has to stand alone. And he's determined to be faithful. And then comes the final and most severe test of all. He gets a visit from some of his friends. And three friends come to see him. And at this point, the whole book shifts its focus slightly. We now no longer are looking upon Job alone, but we're looking at the, his controversy with these three friends. And their discourse occupies the major part of this book. And they are attempting, from their human, very human point of view, to answer this same haunting question. Why do senseless tragedies occur among men? And the whole of the book, then, in this beautiful poetic language, is an attempt on the part of these men to come to an answer. Now, the answer of the three friends is all the, always the same. They agree together. And their answer is a very smug, dogmatic assurance that there can only be one possible explanation of Job's problem, and that is that he has committed some awful sin. And they try to break down Job's defenses with, the, with argument. Now, it isn't that they're wrong necessarily in this explanation. There are uh, events uh, of uh, tragedy and catastrophe and heartache and pain and suffering which do occur because of sin. Anytime we violate the laws of God's physical universe, even including the laws of health, there is an immediate and sometimes very violent reaction physically. And there is much of suffering that comes from that. But their problem and their evil lay in the fact that they dogmatically asserted that this was the only explanation possible for this kind of suffering. And they each take three rounds with Job. Each of them comes three times with an argument. Uh, so that was nine arguments in all. And all play wearisomely on the same string. They try various approaches. They try sarcasm and irony. And they appeal to Job's honesty. They try direct accusation, accusing him of specific crimes and misdeeds. And then they get hurt and go skulking away and uh, with miffed pride and try to uh, appeal to Job on that basis, lest he insult them anymore. And all the time are trying to break down this uh, uh, Job's integrity with the argument that God is just and the righteous are always blessed and the wicked always suffer. The, ergo, if you're suffering, therefore, it must, be, if, it must be because there's something wrong in your life. And this is their argument. It, with them, it's a simple matter of cause and effect. And it's very logical, sounds very logical and very neat and tidy. And it explains everything unless you happen to be the sufferer. 
But Job at first is only slightly irritated with these friends. And then he becomes angry and finally very sarcastic. He says to them, in the, uh, the opening lines of his reply to them is always a choice bit of sarcasm. He says to them, I, I'm sure you, you realize that you are the people and that wisdom is going to die with you. You've got all the answers. You've solved all the problems. You know everything. There's no use talking to you any, any longer. And with rather bitter, sarcastic reply, he tries to uh, plead with them and to point out that uh, uh, their, their explanation of his suffering is wrong. And finally, he's bitterly resentful and openly pleads with them for understanding. He says he can't confess sin because he's honestly unaware of anything that he's done that has offended God. And he can't believe in justice any longer because their arguments that the wicked always suffer simply are not so. He points out that there are many people who are very wicked, notoriously wicked, and they're prospering and flourishing and living in ease, and nothing's happened to them. And furthermore, he says, he doesn't know what to do because God won't even listen to him. That he doesn't have a chance to even plead his case before God. And he... He complains that God hides from him and cannot be found. And eventually Job ends up shouting at these friends in, a, in, a, in just a turmoil of confusion and bewilderment and anger, hurt, and frustration. And he's afraid of this God, he says. He's not the kind of God that he's known. He doesn't know what's happened to this dear old friend upon whom he could always rely before. He's taken a strange turn in his attitude, and now these awful things are happening to him, and he's uncertain what to say. And the one glorious thing about this dear man throughout this whole book is that he's utterly, completely honest. He simply blurts out his confusion and his bewilderment and his puzzlement over what's happening. He refuses to admit something that he cannot see. And he simply says, all these path answers that are offered for this problem of his don't help at all. And out of his desolation, there come the expressions of the ultimate cry of the human spirit. There are some wonderful verses come out of, out of these discourses of Job, in which, stripped as he is to the very foundations of human thought, he just cries out from time to time, uttering some of the deepest expression of the human heart. And you'll note some of these, if you want to, just rather hastily. In chapter 9, verse 32, he says of God, For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. And then, in the Hebrew, literally, Would that there were an umpire between us. Oh, that there were a dazed man, a mediator between us, who might lay his hand upon us both. That's the cry of the heart that recognizes that God is higher and greater and richer and more and fuller than man. And man is, man can't reach him. And there's the cry for a mediator, for a daysman to come in between. Then in chapter 14, there comes another expression from this man's heart of, uh, of, of faith. He says, If a man die, verse 14, shall he live again? 
All the days of my service I would wait till my release should come. That is, if I knew that after I died I would live again, I would gladly wait, he said, until that time to argue my case before God. And out of the depths of this man's desolation and suffering comes welling up this great cry, the question that is uttered by so many, if a man die, shall he live again? And then in chapter 16, verse 19, Job cries out, Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he that vouches for me is on high. Now, earlier, he had cried out for a mediator. Oh, that I might have somebody who said, he says, who could step in between me and God. Now comes the realization at last, born of his desperation. He says, I realize now that the only one who can adequately argue my case for me is God himself. If any cause of mine is going to be fairly presented to before God, God himself has to do it. And in chapter 19, verse 23, there comes another cry out of his distress, in which he utters this most triumphant note of all. Oh, that my words were written, he says. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were graven in the rock forever. And that prayer was fulfilled. But I know, he says, that my Redeemer lives. And at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh, in the Hebrew, in my flesh, I shall see God. And out of the dark, deep distress of this man are come these cries which find their fulfillment in the coming of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. He came to be a mediator. He came to give assurance that man shall live again. He came to stand between man and God. And he came to stand in the flesh upon earth that man might see him face to face. Now, there comes the final blow to Job after all these friends, so-called, have had their, their uh, chance with him and have tried to beat him down with the same old argument, uh, beat into a club and pounded over his head again and again. And poor Job, bruised and defeated and puzzled and bewildered and confused, is now met with a, another a young man who happened to be standing there evidently all along. He suddenly is interjected into the picture. His name is Elihu, and he speaks for the voice of youth. And he stands up and says, you're both wrong. He says, you friends of Job are wrong because you're accusing him unjustly. And Job is wrong because he's, he's blaming God for his difficulties. And he is... Uh, he is uh, he is accusing God in order to exonerate himself. And he goes on to point out the weaknesses in both of the arguments, but he offers still nothing positive in the way of an answer to this question. And then suddenly, in chapter 38, the Lord answers Job. Out of the whirlwind's fury he comes, and he says to him, You want a debate, Job? You've been saying you want some answers to your questions? and that I've been hiding, and I'm not willing to debate with you? You want to debate your case? All right. Let's first see your qualifications. I've got a list now of 40 questions I'd like to ask you to see if you're competent 
uh, to understand problems. These are very simple problems, very simple questions. And if you're able to handle the, uh, the ABCs of uh, life uh, on this level, then I think perhaps you're able to debate with me the questions that you have in your heart. And beginning with verse uh, chapter 38 and 39 and 40, you have one of the most remarkable passages in all of the Bible, where God takes Job on a tour of nature. And he asks him question after question about whether Job can handle this kind of thing or that kind of thing in, in nature. And gradually it, the picture is drawn of, of a vastly complicated, tremendously intertwined problem of life in which it takes tremendous superhuman wisdom in order to answer all the questions and direct all the activities and keep life in balance. And at the end of this tremendous display of the wisdom of God, Job falls down on his face and says, I have heard of you with the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees thee, and I despise myself and repent in dust and in ashes. God's essential argument was, life is too complicated for simple answers. If you're demanding God to come out with just simple answers to these deep and complicated problems, you're asking him to do more than you're able to understand. He's simply saying that only God is adequate to handle these kind of questions. Therefore, man's position is don't argue with him, simply trust. He has displayed in the most amazing way the ability to work out complicated situations and to, and to keep human life and the life of the entire world and all the tremendously involved life of nature operating in beautiful balance. Now, if you, observing that, see that, then trust him to work out these complicated problems of life. And Job, overwhelmed by the vast might and wisdom and majesty of God, falls on his face and repents. And he learns the lesson God wants him to know. That God has the right to use his men for whatever purpose he desires. In other words, that God does not exist for man, but that we exist for him. That God is not a glorified bellboy that uh, we snap our fingers and he runs up and says, "What? let me take your order. But uh, God, we exist for him. We are his instruments for the working out of his purposes. And God has some vastly complicated purposes that are yet beyond our ability to understand. There are many questions which simply cannot yet be answered in life because our calculating machinery is so incomplete. There are a lot of dangling participles in life and we have to leave them dangling. And the last of the book is a beautiful picture of what James calls the tender mercy of God toward, Jehovah, uh, toward Job. God says to Job, now I want you to pray for your friends. These three dear men so stubborn, so sure that they had all the answers, meaning so well, so sincere, so dedicated, but such utter blunderers. Now pray for them, Job. And then Job's, God said to Job, Job, how many, how many uh, uh, sheep was it that you had? 
Job said 7,000. God said, all right, I'll give you 14,000. How many oxen did you have? And he said, a thousand yoke, or five hundred, rather. God says, I'll give you a thousand. How many camels? Three thousand. All right, you've got six thousand camels. How many asses did you have? Five hundred. I'll give you a thousand. And how many sons and daughters? Seven sons and three daughters. All right, Job, you've got seven sons and three daughters more. Twice as many. Seven sons and three daughters in glory, and seven sons and three daughters on earth. And God restored twice as much to Job, and the rest of his life then was lived in blessedness and happiness. And the account closes with the words, Job died an old man and full of days. Now, the remarkable thing about this book is the answer that we are given as the audience at the opening part of the book concerning the fact that the background of human suffering is the age-long conflict in Satan's challenge to God's righteous government of the universe. That answer is never given to Job at all, while he lives at least. At the beginning of the book, you find God and Satan and Job. And at the end of the book, Satan has faded out of the picture entirely. And there stands God before Job with his arms akimbo saying, all right, I'm responsible. Any questions? And the great lesson of the book is, there are times when we cannot be told the whole picture. There are times when even God cannot adequately explain life to us. There are times when we must know that uh, all suffering is not just for being bad, but also suffering can come because only through it can come some final good. And Job, I think, strikes the deepest note of this book when in chapter 23, verse 10, born out of the, out of the desolations of his heart, and yet with the Spirit of God within him, urging him on to faith in this violent conflict and struggle against bewilderment and confusion and puzzlement and darkness, Job says, but he knows the way that I take when he has tried me. I shall come forth as gold. Now, that's the lesson of the book. You see, life is too complicated for us to handle. It gets so involved that we can't even be given some of the answers at times. But God is saying, if you just take a look at all the problems I keep solving on the very simplest levels of life, which are still far beyond your ability, can't you then trust me to work this one out as well? It's the cry of Paul in Romans 8. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. Shall we pray? Our Father, thank you for this look into the heart of Job. Thank you for the recording for us, the struggles of this dear man. And in all frankness and openness and honesty, hearing him voicing his doubts, airing his grievances, charging thee with his complaints. Lord, we hear ourselves in our irksome petulance, crying out to thee, blaming you for our circumstances, unwilling to believe that you have a purpose behind them, able to work them out. Lord, teach us to rest in the explanations that are given here and in the great and 
wonderful revelation that behind it all we are being privileged to be instruments of the working out of thy great conflict with the enemy of man and demonstrating once and for all that the only life worth living is a life lived by faith. We pray in thy name. Amen.